Blog Talk Radio. jungle. We've got fun in games. My guess is only like 35% of you know that reference. And it's not your fault. It's an old ass song. I barely know it. (laughs) It is a classic though. Some would argue it's a top tier classic. I wouldn't necessarily argue that, but they're not totally wrong. Um, So today we're going to talk about how President Trump gave another rambling speech in the Rose Garden on Adderall. (laughs) Oh, man. I I wish that was a joke. I mean, it kind of sounds like a joke, but it's not really a joke. Uh, It's actually totally true. Like, that's what's happening. Trump is giving uh, rambling speeches on Adderall. (laughs) So we'll talk about that. Bet on my stork shoved his foot directly in his mouth on the issue of Medicare for All, so I will proceed to shove my foot directly in his ass. Um, And then also, every day, the situation in Iran is getting worse. Um, Wait until you hear the updates. Scary, scary stuff. Ben Carson made a fool of himself yet again, and this is what happens when you put the world's sleepiest surgeon in, uh, in charge of housing and urban development. And um, Michael Avenatti somehow made the show today, and so did Newt Gingrich. (laughs) Two random people who I'm sure you guys wouldn't have bet uh, would be in the show today. But nonetheless, they are. So uh, let's go ahead and get this bad boy started. And I'm going to pull up that Donald Trump clip from the Rose Garden. Has this been spliced? Of course not. 
Of course not. This is what happens when you rush. This is what happens when you rush Limbaugh. Okay, so um, here, let's get this started. So President Trump gave another rambling speech in the Rose Garden. Um, It was supposed to be a speech about infrastructure, but he really just played the victim and whined about the investigations into his businesses that the Democrats are currently conducting. Um, They're, of course, trying to get his tax returns, and he's flipping out as a result of that. So this is, without question, my favorite part of the speech. Speaker Pelosi, I want to do infrastructure. I want to do it more than you want to do it. I'd be really good at that. That's what I do. But you know what? You can't do it under these circumstances. So get these phony investigations over with. I'm sorry. I was going to go ahead and make America great again. But I can't because I don't like what the Democrats are doing. (laughs) So, in other words, the American people now have to suffer because Donald Trump's little snowflake feelings are hurt. I mean, think about how ridiculous what he just said is. You don't want to do infrastructure, so you don't want to make America great again, which is your whole fucking thing, what you say your thing is. Because Democrats are investigating you, so you're holding that over their heads, but really it's holding it over the heads of the American people, and you're saying you have to stop looking into my businesses and my corruption and my finances, and then then maybe we'll do infrastructure. I want to do it so much, I want to do it more than even you do, more than anybody can imagine. You simply hate to see it, folks. You hate to see the Democrats doing what they're doing here. I have to tell you, it's really sad, very sad. Oh, come on, man. The Democrats have to pounce on this because that's just, imagine, imagine Obama said something like that. I'm not the biggest fan of like the let's compare Trump to Obama because it's usually like a cheap point in, in many instances where, you know, people will try to act like there's no comparison when in often cases In many cases, there are comparisons, like drone strikes, Obama just killing civilians doing drone strikes, and Trump doing the same and going even further. But this is one of those instances where you know it would be on Fox News for like five days straight. Uh, Listen, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to do an an infrastructure deal. Uh, Let me be clear. I would like to do an infrastructure deal, but uh, I I can't do it because uh, the Republicans are uh, looking a little too closely. Uh, into myself and my administration. And this, I think, has to stop before we do anything legislatively. So I'm going to make the American people (laughs) have no legislation that improves their lives until I get what I want in terms of the investigation. He would never do that because he's not a fucking child. He's not a baby. (laughs) Trump is a child. Sorry, I can't make America great again today because the Democrats are mean to me. And he spins everything that's weak, he spins as if it's macho. Like, this isn't macho. This reminds me of when he pulled out of the Fox News debate during the primaries, and he was like, Megyn Kelly's going to be there. And I have to tell you, Megyn Kelly treats me very unfairly, very unfairly. That's not, that's incredibly weak and insecure for you to not show up. 
but you're trying to pretend like it's like you're you're a macho man, you're you're a big strong guy. Oh, it's so stupid. Now, but here's the other important point about this. Um there's stuff that's in the, that's in those tax returns. There's no doubt about that. I'm convinced of that. 100%. And you know, you noticed you saw little hints being dropped every step of the way if you were paying attention. Because I remember, remember his uh, rambling speech at CPAC, where he was also massively high on Adderall? And he was saying, on the Russia investigation, he was saying, what happened? I thought that this was supposed to be about Russia. Look into Russia, but it was good. you want to look into every business dealing I've ever done? These people are sick. Sick people. Sick people. Very so that's him. That's like a little hint of like, fine, go ahead. Go nuts in the Russia stuff. Look all you want. But looking at my, you know, my personal business dealings, well, don't do that. I thought, I thought this was about Russia. Focus on the Russia thing. Don't look into my businesses. Don't look into other things involving my finances. Don't do that. That's like a red flag of, oh, you're going to find shit there. And I've said it all along. There's a, an investigation into Trump in the Southern District of New York happening right now. Um, and I think that when Trump is no longer president, they will indict him. And they'll indict him on maybe up to a dozen financial crimes, and it, including money laundering. There was that big story that broke earlier in the week that we covered of, uh, you know, Deutsche Bank. There were red flags about money laundering and they were ignored by the higher-ups. The higher-ups at Deutsche Bank made a decision, don't look into that, probably because they knew. In the same way, you know, Deutsche Bank and they were part of the LIBOR uh, scandal. They were part of, they did business with, like, Iran and, like, drug cartels and shit, violating U.S. sanctions, so breaking the law. Um, So they probably knew what was going on with Trump, and they were just protecting him. So they ignored money laundering red flags. But the point is, they're hiding his tax returns. They're going out of their way to hide his tax returns. He's been bullshitting since he started running his campaign. And when he was running his campaign, he was saying, oh, I'm under a routine audit, and when I'm done with the audit, then I'll release it. And then he never released it. And then if you ask him that question today, he says the same thing. Like, oh, yeah, routine audit. You've been under audit for fucking two years straight? That's a crock of shit, dog. Everybody knows that's a crock of shit. So he's hiding them. He's hiding them because there's shit in there. Now, best case scenario for him is he's just not as wealthy as he says. But I really don't think that's it. I really don't think that's it. I really think that there's other... And there's some evidence to point in the direction that there are other financial crimes. And this is... I mean, you want to talk about desperate? When you do a speech in the Rose Garden, and it's supposed to be about infrastructure, and you make the whole fucking thing about how Democrats are mean for investigating you and trying to get your tax returns. And a court, I think, recently ruled that they have to turn them over or something like that. Forgive me for not knowing the details. The the, um, court case literally came out yesterday, so I didn't have time to go through it. But it's it's something about, no, when Democrats are asking for that and they're doing a, a congressional investigation, you have to turn it over. So... This is a desperate attempt, man. This is him, like, really trying to say, no, 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 don't look there, and uh, I'm going to hold infrastructure over your head to maybe hopefully make it so that you drop this. But I got bad news for Donald Trump. You think the Democratic Party actually gives a shit about getting infrastructure passed? I wish they did. (laughs) They don't give a shit about getting it passed. 
and they would rather play politics. Um, in the same way, it's not like the Republicans wouldn't do similar shit. They do, they do it all the time, but um, they don't care enough about the actual policy. So holding that over their head, Pelosi and Schumer are laughing at that. They're like, shit, I'm not sure we want to do an infrastructure deal at all in the first place. So to think that this is going to work, this isn't going to work, dog. They're, com- they're coming for you hard. And this is one of those instances where they're searching hard enough and they might just find something. And you can tell he's scared. He really is. He's shook. Now, the question is whether or not they'll be able to capitalize off of what we learned, because there's so many instances with Trump. It reminds me of that old tweet, which I think is still one of the best ever, in my opinion. It's like somebody says, ah, I'd like to see old Donnie, you know, wiggle his way out of this one. And then it says, Donnie wiggles his way out of it easily. And then it says, ah, well, nevertheless. <laughs> That's like every... Every Trump scandal, especially in regards to Russiagate, it was like, aha, we got him. And then it, it was just like two days later, like, what was that story where we thought we all got him? <laughs> it would just go away. And, you know, it's possible that all that shit ends up like that. But, again, my prediction is, and you'll be able to hold me to it, I was right about Russiagate. They found no evidence of collusion. I was correct about that. My prediction was spot on. My next prediction is when he's no longer president, he will be indicted by the Southern District of New York for genuine financial crimes, 100%. That's what I think. Um, And I also think he is hiding the tax returns because there's a lot of stuff in there that he doesn't want anybody to fucking see, and we will know we'll be able to trace that money back to um, a variety of corrupt dealings, to say the least, including, yes, Russian oligarchs money laundering elsewhere with other people. Um, in his Panama Hotel, there was evidence of drug money laundering. In New York, in the 80s and 90s, he, ha- he did dealings with the mafia. He had to. To build, be a builder in New York in the 80s and 90s, 100% you had to have mafia dealings. 100%. So you'll be able to find that stuff for sure. So I think he's really panicking at the last minute here because they're on to something with with looking into his personal finances, because I think there's just a treasure trove of damaging stuff. All right, bet on my stork. Do I have a stork for you to bet on? You bet your ass I have a stork for you to bet on. So Beto O'Rourke, also known um, very popularly, is that a word, popularly? As uh, bet on my stork. I'm never going to not laugh at that. All of you could be sitting there stone-faced like, I don't don't get it. And I'm going to fucking love that to my core. But anyway, there's a man who likes to bet on storks, and he was asked a question about health care in a CNN town hall, and his answer was infuriating. I have multiple sclerosis, and this disease is treated with very expensive pharmaceutical drugs. In addition to the ever-increasing costs of my generic drugs, the cost of the primary drug I take for the multiple sclerosis now retails one dose at $21,800. I get this every six weeks, $21,800 for a little bag of white, of 
clear liquid that is infused in my chest. It has depleted our savings, and I worry about how we can afford the ever-increasing costs of these drugs that reduce the progression of my MS. Dan, thank you for being here. for having the courage of sharing your story so we all understand the consequences of the policies that we've adopted in this country. You should be able to get the care that you need to live your life to the fullest. And costs should not be an object or a concern or an anxiety of yours. I want you to focus on being well and doing well for others. To add insult to injury, you and I as taxpayers have funded so much of the research and development for the cures and the medications and the pharmaceuticals that are sold back to us at the highest prices on the planet. We prevent you from buying from Canada or from Europe or somewhere else where you can purchase it cheaper, and we refuse to use the purchasing power of Medicare, the leverage in all of the prescription medications that we buy for those beneficiaries to drive the price down. We have a plan to address this. We're going to make sure that every single American has access to high-quality, universal health care without exception. There's a plan called Medicare for America. What will ensure that everyone who does not have care today is enrolled in Medicare. Those who have insufficient care, they can't make the copay after insurance kicks in or afford the, the premium or bridge the deductible, they can choose Medicare as well. But those who have employer-sponsored insurance and like it because it works for them and their families are able to keep it. And we use the leverage of this government, not just for Medicare, but Medicaid beneficiaries, VA beneficiaries, TRICARE beneficiaries, to bring the prices of these medications down so that you and other Americans can afford them. That's what we should be able to do. Thank you, Diane, for, for asking the question. Appreciate it. Yeah. So you mentioned your plan for the plan that you signed on to, Medicare for America. Why not Medicare for all? I think about Diane, um, I think about Joey, uh, a young man, 27 years old, that I met in Laredo, Texas. He's been to a doctor once in his life because he does not have insurance. And that doctor told him that he had diabetes, that he had glaucoma, and that he would be dead before the age of 40 because he's not getting any care right now in this country. Joey, Diane, others, they don't have time for us to get to the perfect solution. If we were to start from scratch, maybe we would start with a single payer, but we've got to work with the system that we have here today. The surest, quickest way to get there is Medicare for America. It guarantees every single person in this country gets the care that they need to live to their full potential and do those things that they were placed on this planet to perform in the first place. So that's why I support that plan. This is beyond infuriating to me. At this point, the centrist corporatists know we can't win the debate on this issue. It's over 70% of the American people, including a majority of Republicans, they're in favor of Medicare for all. So since they can't beat it, what they're trying to do is be weaselly and conniving and clever and confuse you and make you think they support it by naming their plans like Medicare for America, Medicare Extra, Medicare for All Extra, they come up with these goofy-ass names in the hopes that people are confused enough to go, I don't know, I guess that's the thing, right? Isn't that it? Is that the thing where everybody's covered full stop? 
And the answer is no, that's not it. But they're not being honest and upfront about the fact that they don't support it. They're being weaselly and trying to leech off the popularity of Medicare for all while promising, while not delivering on that promise and on the real solution. And just understand, everybody who's not in favor of Medicare for all, what they're saying is, hey, there are 10 leeches on your back. I promise I'm going to take off five. But I still have five leeches on my back. You should probably take them all off. Eh, we're going to do a little half measure here, and I'll let, oh, I'm going to take off five. Hey, it's better than nothing, right? I mean, it is literally better than nothing, right? So why, why are you complaining? We're complaining because you're not fundamentally questioning the premises of the system. We have a system where there's an unnecessary, rapacious, for-profit, mafia-like middleman that gets in between you and your doctor and quite literally has death panels. There's a process called rescission where they try to cancel contracts um, based on saying, oh, you didn't disclose you had X, Y, and Z, therefore that was a pre-existing condition, therefore we're not going to cover for your fucking cancer treatment or whatever it may be. You're saying, let's not shake stuff up too much. We don't want to rock the boat here too much. But the most infuriating part is, as you're saying that, you're also trying to pretend like your plan is just as good, if not better, than Medicare for all, and it's simply not. So there's a lot of that that I was, like, really pissed about. Here you have a a woman stepping up and being very vulnerable and explaining her situation. And Beto goes right back to his, like, standard politician shtick. And that really creeps me out because you want to talk about if there was ever a moment to have, like, a genuine response. But he doesn't. He goes right back to the pre-planned script. So for those of you who don't know about this stuff, behind the scenes his staffers tell him, like, oh, Whenever anybody asks a question, you have to thank them and, and, and act like you're really appreciative of all these things. And so he says, well, I want to thank you for being here. And he goes right back into with his fucking perfect posture and the way he points, he does the politician point, and he goes right back into his, like, pre-planned stump speech. And it's like, bro, are you not human? Are you a fucking robot? You just heard somebody pour their heart heart out about how they're massively suffering and they're basically going bankrupt from having to pay for medication, and you'll go right into, well, thank you for asking that question. What the fuck is that shit? Thank you for asking that Can you just fucking say what the actual goddamn solution is? I think we should have a system like the UK where you go and you pick up drugs from the pharmacy and you only pay $10, full stop, and the rest of it is covered by the taxpayers. That's it. That's it. But he doesn't say that. You want to know why? He doesn't fucking believe that. That's why. Then he does the Obama move. Oh, you can keep your insurance if you like it. In the U.S., we pay double for our health care and get worse health outcomes than other developed nations. So your argument is, yeah, but if you like paying double and getting worse health outcomes, sure, you can keep it. Employer-sponsored health insurance is a goddamn scam. It's a scam because people know, oh, my God, I can't, like, change jobs because then I'm going to have to worry about that four-week gap where I don't have coverage and I need coverage because i got to get my medication. So people literally take jobs they don't want so they can get the health insurance. If you like your – people don't like their health insurance better. They like their doctor. It's not like anybody's ever sat around like, oh, 
Heaven forbid I ever leave the wonderful Etna. I love it when they jack up the prices and make me poor. He's just, he's a technocratic, wonky, tweak-around-the-edge, neoliberal corporatist goon. That's what he is. And this is not what we need. We've had, that was Bill Clinton, that was Barack Obama. We've had the technocratic, centrist corporatists, and all they do is embolden Republicans. Because the half measures are not loved. The half measures are not loved. And then the right beats up on them anyway and accuses those half measures of being socialism. So you get the double whammy of the, the proposals not being all that popular. And then the Republicans pretending like they're the populist solution to this shit. And they go right back to the same goddamn playbook. Oh, yeah, I, if you like your health insurance, you can keep it. Oh. And then the worst line of all is, he says, well, they, these people can't afford to wait for the perfect solution. No, they can't afford to wait for the half measure. How did he use that argument? They can't afford to wait for that, the actual solution. No, they can't afford to wait for the fucking shitty half measure that still keeps the root of the problem in place, which is the greedy, rapacious, for-profit, health insurance, mafia middlemen. God damn it, man. Listen, this is one of those issues where there is no compromise. I'm sorry. You want to accuse me of having a litmus test? Guilty. I have a litmus test. If you're not for Medicare for all and you're running as a Democrat in 2020, you're, you're beyond hopeless. Nobody should consider voting for you for even a split second. We're talking about it is it is the most obvious thing when every other developed country has one version or another of a single payer system and they pay half as much as we do and they have better health outcomes and nobody's uncovered here we have millions of people who are uncovered uh and pharmaceutical drugs are way 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 cheaper and you don't have medical bankruptcies, that's not a thing in other developed nations. It's not like you don't get to pretend like, who knows, bro? You know, you say tomato, I say tomato. You say you want to put the actual solution in place, I say I want to do another goofy-ass middle-ground approach which is going to get shit on and destroyed by the Republicans anyway. Hey, man, (laughs) I guess it's all equal, right? I guess it's a wash. No, it's not a wash. Your plan sucks ass, and Medicare for all is correct. That's what we're looking at here. And even in a situation where somebody is explaining in very clear terms, here's how broken the system is, and what are you going to do about it, you still don't give the proper answer. You do your heartless robotic nonsense. Uh, by the way, for a rare instance of the CNN host nailing it and saying, why not Medicare for all? And what's his response? The classic politician dodge, classic politician dodge. Uh, I know a guy named Steve who had these, this, this, and this problem. I know a guy named Dave who has that, that, and that problem. And notice, does that answer the question? 
No, I didn't answer the question, did it? You're pivoting to the anecdotal to pretend like you care. Oh, my heart bleeds for this person I met. Oh, they have such terrible problems. Yeah. Then why aren't you in favor of the solution, Medicare for All? That's the only solution. Why aren't you in favor of that? Well, I'm just going to give you gruesome details of somebody who's suffering in the hopes that you think I care deeply for them, so my solution must be good because that's why I'm bringing them up. No, it's the classic bullshit politician dodge where you make it personal. Oh, I'm going to talk about a person I met. Whereas, again, that ignores policy. That dodges the substance. I'm telling you, man, it's a different era. It really is. We're not in the old school era anymore. I think now people are much more likely to hear that shitty dodge of like, I'm going to tell you about a person I know. And they're going to go, wait, you didn't. That's not answering the question. Because a Republican could do that, too. Why don't you care? Why don't you want to do, uh, you know, this solution to a problem? Well, I met a guy named Tony and I met a woman named Jennifer. And let me tell you about Tony and Jennifer. Why? Why are we talking about Tony and Jennifer? Let's talk about the fucking thing I fucking asked you about. He's an incredibly sleazy politician. And everything he's doing is an attempt to get elected. That's it. He cares about the narcissism and the self-aggrandizement of being president. And he's overly coached. Everything is fucking laid out in advance. Him and his staffers try to plot their way through this fucking thing. There's not a genuine moment since he's been on the campaign trail, and that's continuing to be the case. And he's not what this country needs at this point. And that's clear. And if you think he is, you just have to face the fact that you're not a lefty. It's fine. It's fine. Okay, somebody supports Beto. Fine, fine, fine. But just know what you are, because that's not up in the air. That's not, like, up for interpretation. If you support this kind of stuff, you're a neoliberal centrist corporatist. That's what you are. Sorry. There's one other point I wanted to make, and it just dropped out of my head mid-segment. I think I'm just going to have to leave it. Yep, I'm going to leave it. Fuck him, man. Fuck Beto. Okay, let's go to the situation in Iran. So every single day, the situation in Iran is getting worse and worse. Senate committee rejects requiring Congress sign off before Iran strike. So this is Congress saying, meh, Constitution, schmonstitution. If the Trump administration wants to do an offensive, illegal strike on Iran, we don't care. We say go right ahead. Now, just understand Every single Republican who supports this and pretends to care about the Constitution, they're liars. They're liars. The Constitution is crystal clear. Only Congress can declare war. And they're just ignoring that. So next time you hear them yelp and bitch and moan about the Second Amendment 
The Constitution's off the table. It's not open for debate. Really? Then why did you fucking ignore it when it came to your uh, duties of wartime? Why did you ignore it? And there's a million other ways they ignore it, too. I mean, they believe in torture, so cruel, unusual punishment. That violates the Eighth Amendment crystal clear. Um, They believe in NSA spying, the overwhelming majority of them. And, of course, that's a violation of your protection from unreasonable search and seizure, the Fourth Amendment. Um, so they're just they're, – they're massive hypocrites. But, I mean, we, we've reached a scary point, particularly on U.S. foreign policy, because this has happened now from George W. Bush and onward. It's gone into overdrive. Presidents are not held accountable at all on foreign policy. They can just do whatever the fuck they want. That's how we're bombing eight different countries right now, and – Nobody even bats an eyelash because they just go, I don't know, I guess it's the president's job. He's the commander in chief. He can do whatever the fuck he wants. So, oh, you want to go to fucking, you want to help a genocide in Yemen? Go right ahead. You want to bomb Mali randomly? Go right ahead. I don't care. We're doing a shadow war in Africa, and barely any news outlets have even reported on it. Only The Intercept, really, and maybe a handful of others have reported on it. All this stuff is illegal and unconstitutional, never mind illegal under international law. So none of this is defensive in nature, and we're just doing it. We're still in Iraq. We're still in Afghanistan. Really flimsy rationale. We're in Syria. I mean, they're totally rolling over and saying, yeah, whoever's president, go right ahead. Well, what happened? You guys were just screaming and yelling and bitching and moaning about Donald Trump and his authoritarian tendencies and... We can't have a lunatic like this with his finger on the red button. And then they turn around and they're like, oh, by the way, yeah, go right ahead. We're going to let you do whatever you want and not hold you accountable at all on foreign policy. So fuck if we care. You want to invade Slovakia? We still don't give a shit. Go right ahead. That's what's happening, man. And um, it really is like on foreign policy, we've gone full dictatorship. Yeah, yeah, whatever. One person, you know, rules everything and we're all going to turn the other way. And in reality, that person who's more in control than anybody, I'd probably argue, is John Bolton and the neocons. So that's just mental. So look at what the New York Times says about Iran. In its campaign to throttle Iran into submission, the Trump administration has in the last several weeks applied smothering force, blocking the country's last avenues for selling oil, classifying the elite Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps as a terrorist organization, and deploying ships and bombers to the Persian Gulf. Uh Uh-oh. But if the goal of increased pressure was to force Iran to change its behavior or to send angry Iranians into the streets to ultimately sweep the nation's clerical leadership from power, it has so far achieved neither. Instead, it appears to have only stiffened Iran's resolve, pushing it from wary patience to calibrated confrontation against an enemy it has long mistrusted. Its leaders, analysts say, are determined not to capitulate to what they view as economic and psychological warfare, or to negotiate under duress. I told you this is what was going to happen, and now it's happening. So I said, and you can go back and check the segments on Iran from the past three months, I said, when the U.S. tries to block all Iran oil exports, force their oil exports to zero, that is when they're literally trying to do regime change. Because the economy can't survive. The economy will totally and completely implode when you force their oil exports to zero. And that's what they're doing. That's exactly what they're doing. So 
make no mistake about it, this is like step one to the actual regime change. Like before, it was just we're going to try to incentivize it and prod it along and push it. No, this is we're doing it. We're doing it. And there, just so you know, as a result of the direct actions of the U.S., they now have massive medicine shortages. So that means people die. That means people die. When people can't get their necessary medication, they die. And then the U.S. has the nerve to turn around and say, oh, all we want is the freedom of the Iranian people. They act like they care about regular people in Iran. You don't give a fuck about them. You're strangling them of medicine. Medicine. So that's what they're doing. It's incomprehensible how this is unfolding. You have, when they send ships and bombers to the Persian Gulf, and then what do you do? You now force Iran's hand. So Hassan Rouhani, the president of Iran, has stepped up and said, I need more powers. This is like an emergency time. And he's talking, of course, to the Grand Ayatollah and the Revolutionary Guards. And the Grand Ayatollah came out in a very rare instance and directly rebuked the president, Hassan Rouhani. And Hassan Rouhani, for those of you who don't know, um, and Zarif as well, who was originally a negotiator of the Iran deal, they're moderates. So they always favor more like compromise approach, negotiation approach with the U.S. and with the rest of the world. And now, as a direct result of U.S. actions, you have emboldened the far right in Iran. Because they said all along to the moderates, don't do it. Oh, you're going to do a deal with the Americans? Really? Really? The people who overthrew our government in 1953 to implement a puppet dictator so they could jack our oil, to screw over the Iranian people and control our government. They overthrew our government, the CIA did, and they put in a puppet dictator, and you want to make a deal with these people? You trust these people? Bitch, please. How naive are you? This is what the hardliners were saying. This is what the the Shia Islamists were saying. This is the far right in Iran. And guess what? Now you've emboldened them. You've emboldened them because you put your middle finger up to the moderates, because when there was a negotiated deal that they were following, you said, oh, I don't even care that they're following it. I'm going to pretend that they're not following it. I'm going to pull out of the deal. I'm going to put the sanctions back on, put even worse sanctions on, send bombers there, force your oil exports to zero, try to collapse your economy and force regime change. And what the fuck did you think was going to happen? What did you think was going to happen? You slapped them in the face repeatedly, and then what? You're going to have people rise to power who are like, Please, sir, slap me again. No. The people who say we're drawing a line now have more control, more authority than ever. So you've emboldened the worst actors in Iran. And this is what people were warning about the entire time. But they don't give a fuck. You want to know why? Here's why. Because what happens next? Okay, well, Iran came out and said, look at what the U.S. keeps doing to us. We're fucking dying over here. The economy's collapsing. People can't get medicine. Um, You're forcing our oil exports to zero, just destroying everything. So, okay, we're going to enrich uranium now. Oh, boy, here we go. 
So now they turn around and start enriching uranium, so they get a nuclear weapon to have a deterrent to U.S. aggression. And that's when the Trump administration turns around and goes, Ah! I told you! We couldn't trust Iran all along! They're enriching uranium and they're trying to get a weapon. So now we have to act. I just need everybody to understand, this is on purpose. All this is happening on purpose. And they do not care about the fallout. They do not care about the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives that will be destroyed in Iran. They do not care about taking a relatively stable country for the region and totally blowing it up, which will probably lead to a massive increase in um, terrorism. They don't care about any of that. They don't care about any of that at all. What they care about is getting a nice little puppet state in there to serve U.S. interests. That's what they care about. And they will stop at nothing to do it, and they will be dishonest to a degree we've never seen. Actually, that's not fair. I can't say we've never seen it because we've been doing it post-World War II nonstop. <laughs> that's what we do. That's what we do. We pretend like we're all oh, world police, human rights, blah, 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 and then we go around and we just put in our own puppet dictators to serve our interests as we pretend like we're above the fray and we're doing the right thing and we care about civilians and yada, yada, yada. We have to resist this, man. And it really, it really pains me. It really pains me that at a time when something like this is happening, it's not all systems go resistance against this. Because it's really not. It's just not. It's, if anything, it's like tepid on the Democratic side. We will tepidly oppose what this guy is doing. No, we, it's not. We need, like, robust resistance. We need Democrats in the public sphere calling these people war criminals, saying John Bolton should be locked up. Look at what he did to Iraq. Look at how they broke the Middle East. Look at how they led to an increase in terrorism. Look at how they were wrong about every prediction when it came to the Iraq war. Now they're trying to do it all over again in Iran. Really, the only you have Ilhan Omar, Bernie Sanders, Ro Khanna, Tulsi Gabbard. And the rest, it's like fucking crickets McGee everywhere. You don't hear shit. You have to focus on this. You have to fight back against this. Because what's happening right now is, is the wheels of imperialism are turning. And they're turning faster and faster. And without robust resistance, what do you expect to happen? We know what's going to happen. They're going to do regime change, and they're going to destroy another country and destroy countless lives in the process. And all the while, we're here sitting on our hands, and that's not good enough. These are war criminals. These are war criminals in the Trump administration. And um, they're doing everything they can to prove that. <laughs> and just know how it all unfolded. Just know who the aggressor was and how we kept slapping them in the face even when they were following the agreement and how now we've put them in an unwinnable position where if they just strike back, if they try to cut off an oil route that we use, for example, the U.S. will go guns blazing, all systems go try to topple them. But again, they're in this position because of what we've done. But it will be portrayed in our shitty media as if it's Iran who started the fight, which is beyond ridiculous. So you know this stuff because you're educated, but make sure everybody knows it because it's massively important.
All right, let's make fun of Ben Carson. So Ben Carson was at a committee hearing, and um, he's the head of housing and urban development. And Democratic Representative Katie Porter asked him some questions, and the exchange did not go so well. To get Secretary Carson. Oh, me? Oh, I love me some Oreos. But I like Milano's a lot more. I think they're better. Have y'all ever had the rainbow cookies? Y'all ever had the rainbow cookies? (laughs) He thought you said Oreos, man. What the fuck? (laughs) This is what happens when you put a fucking surgeon in charge of housing and urban development. And just to be clear, you know why he did it, right? You know why Trump did it. It's housing and urban development. So Trump sees Ben Carson and he goes, yeah, we need somebody for the head of housing and urban development. It's a tremendous position, very prestigious position. It's unbelievable. You love to see it. You love to see the head of housing and urban development. And he goes, urban, urban, where are my urbans? Do I have, oh, Ben Carson, he's black. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Let's put the black guy in, the, in charge of housing and urban development. He's urban. Black is urban. We're going to go with him. I guarantee you that was his thinking. The word urban is in there, and he thinks urban equals black. Ben Carson's black. We're good. But this is what happens. You get, Do I know what an Oreo is? I think they're tasty. Hmm. Oh, clown show. The clown show moves on. 
you've never had the myth busted up in a stronger way. The myth of, oh, yeah, when you're a kid, you think, like, oh, they know what they're doing. People who, like, run the country and shit, of course. They got to that position. It makes sense that they're in those positions. Blind leading the blind. That's what's happening. All right. Let's take a break when we come back. Oh, boy, we got Michael Avenatti, the leading grifter, got caught. And I'm going to gloat about that and show you how wrong mainstream media was. And then we're going to go to Fox Business um, talking to the enemy about health care. You'll see what I mean after the break. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
punk beach. All right, y'all. I'm back. Oh, I am back. <clears throat> am I back back? No. We're not starting a story just yet. So today, um, in a, another wonderful episode of Kyle's Kitchen, we have uh, toast again. <laughs> uh. This time, though, the toast is toasted. You guys came after me hard when I had um, the the floppy toast, the limp toast. That sounds like the name of a garage band, limp toast. Um, this time it is actually toasted, you can see. That's not bad. This is like uh, some French toast toast, if that makes sense. Like, you know how French toast is usually more limp? I'm going to use the word limp again. (laughs) Stop saying limp. Um, This is like French toast bread or something. I don't know. It's pretty good. My first time having it right now, live on air. Not bad. I'm a big believer that Raisin bread, cinnamon raisin bread, is underestimated. A lot of people shit on that, man. They're like, oh, fucking cinnamon raisin bread is gross. I don't know where people came up with that. I've always kind of liked it. This is not cinnamon raisin bread, to be clear. Again, this is like French toast something. But, and honestly, this is better than cinnamon raisin bread, but cinnamon raisin bread is is sort of next-level delicious, and everybody... Everybody hates on it. I don't understand that. In the same way that I don't understand the hate that oatmeal raisin cookies get. Everybody like nuts over chocolate chip. But chocolate chip strikes me as so banal. I mean, if you get a really good chocolate chip cookie, of course, it's out of this world delicious. But I feel like many chocolate chip cookies are just very banal. And just like, whatever. It's a very cookie cutter dessert, no pun intended, because it's literally a cookie. Um, but some some good oatmeal raisin, the ceiling's like higher on that, man. I really believe that. And you guys are going to call me crazy, but I don't give a fuck. Mm. Mm-mm, bitch. Yummy in my tummy. Just so everybody knows, I will get to more stories. <laughs> mm. This was poorly planned out because there's no way I'm going to be able to eat all of these on air. Okay. I'll pause for you fuckers. I'll finish that on the next break. Okay. Time to make fun of Michael Avenatti. Well, looky what we have here from the Daily Beast. A little story on Michael Avenatti. 
embattled lawyer Michael Avenatti has been charged with fraud and aggravated identity theft for allegedly snatching a total of $300,000 from Stormy Daniels and spending it on personal expenses like airfare, hotels, and restaurant delivery, and to bankroll his law firm. Federal prosecutors in New York announced the latest charges against the Newport Beach litigator soon after ABC News reported Avenatti was expected to be charged with additional financial crimes. The 48-year-old lawyer faces a slew of charges on, on both coasts, including wire fraud, bank fraud, and extortion. On Wednesday, a grand jury also indicted Avenatti for trying to extort the footwear giant Nike to the tune of $25 million. And the Daniels charges are separate from that case. Remember when the media was slobbing on this dude's knob on a daily basis? And I'm not, that's not an exaggeration. Well, the slobbing on the knob part is an exaggeration, I think. <laughs> but a daily basis is not an exaggeration. They were just, just all up on his shit. They love this guy. They love him. They love him. They love him. They booked him on a zillion shows a day. And a bunch of idiots fell for it and fell for him, and acted like, oh, Michael Avenatti, oh, he's such a serious person, he's so serious, he's so serious, (laughs) well, um, we're going to see who's definitely not serious, that would be mainstream media, look at this.
and who's nothing but a charlatan and a fraud and a con artist. I had to put that last part in there of Ben Shapiro and myself. Um, because, listen, this is one of those issues where I saw it clear as day. It was the most obvious thing in the world that Michael Avenatti is a soulless, vapid, anti-Trump grifter. But I said it right there, he's a charlatan and a fraud and a con artist. He is literally a fraud and a con artist. Literally a fraud. This was, that segment was from 2018 before any of the charges came out. So, there's a reason I show you that. I show you that because you're not crazy. You're not the one who's, who's you know, got the blinders on and following the crowd like a lemming. You're not the one. That's mainstream media. It's, they can be spectacularly wrong about nearly everything, and they learn nothing. Will there be any consequences for the, you know, parade of giant idiots who couldn't stop fawning over this guy? No. There will be no accountability because all of them fawned over the guy. There's groupthink in establishment media, in corporate media, and they don't even realize that there's groupthink. They don't even realize that they're largely dim bulbs who don't know how to follow this stuff in any serious and objective way. They don't know that. But you do know that. Now, now you see, like, oh, okay, so our gut instinct was right all along. These guys have no clue what the fuck they're talking about, none at all. Um, they fall for obvious scams and frauds. And, wow, looks like Kyle had it figured out all along. And look at that. The fucking so-called intellectual of the right said Michael Avenatti was the front-runner for the Democrats. He had him as the front-runner. Based on what? Based on what, Ben? Your gut feeling which is just as wrong on this as it is on virtually every other fucking issue. So my question to you is, why would you take mainstream media seriously when they talk about other issues? Whatever it may be, whether it be Iran, whether it be Russiagate, whether it be Medicare for All, why would you take them seriously when they show you this is how wrong they were about a guy like Michael Avenatti? And again, it was clear as day to see to anybody who was paying attention and was willing to try to be objective. Why would you take them seriously? Why would you take Ben Shapiro seriously on all these issues when he was so spectacularly wrong about this fucking con artist fraud grifter? And I called it and I was right. And by the way, I got angry messages at the time. Like, oh, you're so quick to dismiss everybody. You know, Michael Avenatti had said he was for Medicare for all and he might run for president and you're against him and he's a guy who says he's for Medicare for all. But I had him pegged from the fucking beginning because you, you could see it. You can tell a soulless, vapid grifter if you're just paying attention. The nature of his criticisms, it was all, you know, spectacle. Uh, spectacle? Is that the word I was looking for? Spectacle? I think so. Like, look at me, look at me. Oh, won't you keep love and affection and attention on me? Because I'm going to say Trump is bad and his temper's not good. His temperament isn't fit for office. And I think that. He's a problem, and I'm going to focus on shitty reality star-level resistance arguments against him. Like, that's what it was. It's a show. Michael Avenatti's a fucking WWE character who gets to go out there and play the face as Donald Trump is the heel. 
and these idiots in the media, they, just, mm, they ate it up. Here, I still have some toast here from earlier. This is what, this is Michael Avenatti, the media. swallow it. <laughs> mm. But I play you that clip. Yes to brag, because I was right and they were wrong, but also just to show you how you're right on other issues. They don't, they're just as stupid on other issues, but people pretend like, oh no, the media said this, so they must be right. Based on what? You're trusting the analytical skills of fucking Wolf Blitzer and Don Lemon and all the other jackasses you just saw in that clip. You're trusting their analytical skills? Those guys are just going with the crowd, man. I don't know what's hot at the moment. Okay, we'll just talk about that. It takes... To, to buck the consensus in these elite circles, that's where it's really at. To question, to be skeptical, to try to be objective, that's where it's really at. That's, that's what makes sense. But these guys, they play it safe. And in the process of playing it safe, they actually embarrass themselves if you pause for a second to look at their record. In the same way, like, it's this same way of thinking this same thought process that got us to the point where everybody in mainstream media was convinced that um, Hillary was going to win. It's that same level of delusion, like this delusion that Michael Avenatti is a serious person and that like, you know, oh, maybe he'll be president or he'll be a candidate and we should take him seriously and we should ask his opinion on shit. That same, it's a delusion. It's a way of thinking that's just so shitty that leads them to come to that conclusion in the same way it was shitty thinking that led them to think like Hillary was ironclad and definitely going to win. And again, I am uh, bragging here, but I think it's fucking earned because there weren't many people saying that. But to me, it was the most obvious thing ever just looking at this guy and seeing his media appearances. So just know who knows what the fuck they're talking about, okay? Okay. All right, let's go to Fox Business. So Fox Business did a segment on healthcare with the CEO of Aetna, um, and they're going to ask him his opinion on stuff, which is absolutely mental. Um, let's take a look and you'll see how Fox Business effectively functions as corporate America's propaganda arm. Senate Health 
Committee Chairman Lamar Alexander says he plans to release a draft tomorrow of, quote, bipartisan packages of bills that would, he says, lower health care costs and fix the problem of high pharmaceutical drug prices. And we know that that plus women's health issues have emerged as a hot-button topic as health care pretty much shapes up to be a huge point of focus in the 2020 presidential election. A lot of you care about that. So I'm glad you're watching right now because my next guest is the former chairman and CEO of one of the world's largest healthcare insurance companies, Aetna. As one of the few African Americans to ever lead a Fortune 500 company, he's just authored this book, Learning to Lead, Leading Yourself, Leading Others, and Leading an Organization. Ron Williams is here exclusively. Good to see you, Ron. It's great to be here. Thank you, Patty. So Lamar Alexander has been working with the Senate Health Care Committee's ranking Democrat, Patty Murray, of the state of Washington, and he says they together have come up with this plan. Now, their first effort failed last year. What does this one, from your perspective, have to have to solve the problem that so many Americans are facing right now? Well, I think the first thing that it has, which I think is absolutely wonderful, is bipartisanship. It's both sides of the aisle coming together to address a problem that's important to Americans. I think it's fair to say that we do need a solution to these surprise emergency out-of-network bills. And consumers have a right to expect that if they're following the rules of, of their health plan, that there should not be surprises. Right. And that is sort of the, the one of the, the three legs of this very important stool. Lamar Alexander saying protecting patients from getting massive medical bills that they didn't expect simply because there was, an, there was an emergency and they had to go but, but to, to somebody out of network. But that brings me to, to what we're seeing on the screen right now, the insurers um, since Obamacare. Now, we know before Obamacare they were doing very well. Since Obamacare they've done well. Obamacare under attack they have still done well. What role must the insurer shoulder? I'm pushing you a little bit here because my viewers know my dad was a surgeon, and he railed against you guys. And he said, you'll notice, doctors lose, hospitals lose, the pharma lose. Insurers always come out on top no matter what. Well, I think it's a fair question, and I think that insurers play a fundamental role in helping structure networks. And in today's world, they're providing data and information to both consumers and to physicians. I think that the, the leading health plans are entering into long-term partnerships with physicians and physician groups to focus on creating more value and affordability. And so I think there clearly is an opportunity for health plans to do better and for all aspects of the system to do better. The underlying rate of increase in health care costs is at least two times the CPI. Mm -hmm. Long term, that is not sustainable. It is not. And it's not affordable for the average family. So what we have to have are solutions that look at health care as a system, mm -hmm. not just insurance, not pharma, not physicians, but a system that works for everyone. I want folks to know who they're listening to right now. You are the son of a bus driver for Chicago Transit. Your mom was a uh, manicurist at a local beauty salon. You are the first in your family to graduate from college, and yet you rose to the CEO uh, position and chairman of this massive company, Fortune 500. This book you talk about leading, and we can put up some of the tenets. You say, um, soak up learning with no specific goal in mind. Read everything, right? You also say, change people's perceptions of what is possible. How do you do that? Well, it's extremely important to help people understand what they believe about what's doable. Mm -hmm. And often when you have a conversation, not an accusation, but a conversation, they say, help me understand why you believe that's not doable. 
you're often able to get to the underlying assumptions and help people work their way through those. When you and that's what we did at Aetna. In the middle, there was one good question. Then he was able to give word salad and basically not answer it. And then they immediately go into doing propaganda for him. I want the audience to know who we're talking to. You're the son of a school bus driver. But you made it, good sir. Please explain how you made it. Who gives a fuck? Who cares? You're talking about the issue of health care and health insurance. Okay. He said nothing in his answer. The question was, um, how do health insurers always end up on top no matter what? And he's like, I think that's a good question. And my answer is, what we need to look at is the systems of systemic, systematic institutions. <laughs> what? Well, we need to look at solutions that look at networks. And in networks and out of networks, there are networks. End systems. <laughs> what the fuck are you saying, dog? Oh! But notice, see, this is, this is how they do their propaganda, and CNBC does the same thing. Fox Business and CNBC do this all day long. What they do is they have these discussions about serious issues, but they bring on the exact people who are spearheading the problem. So, you know, back during the... Uh, right before the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession, they had on like, hey, let's invite on the CEO of Bear Stearns, which fucking collapsed and went under. Let's have on the, the CEOs of all the big banks. And we'll talk about, hey, there appears to be a downturn in the market right now, but maybe it's just a, a, a slight correction. Do you think everything will bounce back? You're asking the person who's obviously got every reason in the world to not give you an objective answer and to cover their own fucking asses. That's what they do. Let's invite on CEOs so they can go ahead and do their propaganda. That's literally what they do here. This guy's a former Aetna CEO. It's like, okay, just to put this in perspective for everybody, to explain how ridiculous this is, imagine having a conversation about policing the mafia and you invite on a mafia boss. Why would you expect anything that the mafia boss says to be like, hey, here's how you really should come after us. They're not going to do that. They're going to try to cover their own asses. And that's, that's what this guy's doing. The problem is for-profit health insurance companies running the show. Full stop. So you don't invite the problem to try to explain the solution. Oh, it's so frustrating, man. It's so frustrating. Imagine talking to an Aetna CEO and not having anything prepared about the, no doubt, thousands, thousands of cases of, you know, them rejecting coverage for something and then the person going bankrupt, them rejecting care for something and somebody dies. Like, there are countless examples. We've covered so many examples on this show. I don't, I don't know if it was specifically Aetna or if it was Humana or if it was any of the other uh, corporations, the for-profit health insurance companies, but they exist, man. They exist. So it's just embarrassing how the media is supposed to be a watchdog of power, but here what they do is they coddle power. That's what this is. They suck up to power. Sir, in your book, you talk about how wonderful you are and how people can improve themselves. 
How can they improve themselves? Ugh. But this is why you guys come here, and this is why you come to New Media to get information, because at least we're not that. Okay, next. Cory Booker. Cory Booker time. Let's make fun of him. There is a lot to make fun of if I don't say so myself. So Cory Booker is continuing his fail tour, as I call it. Um, For those of you who don't know, he's still running for president. (laughs) Which is funny in and of itself, because he gets... No, 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 no traction. Like, nothing. Even with this mainstream media that's, like, really working overtime to prop up the likes of Biden and fucking Beto and Kamala, they're just like, who? Who? Bory Cooker? What does that mean? I don't... What? We talking about kitchens, bitch? Bory Cooker? What is that? So, um... Here's the new thing that got him dunked on relentlessly on Twitter. This was in uh, Vice News. Speaking to NPR, the 2020 candidate said he was reading the work of conservative writer David Brooks. Oh, boy. And it's all up in his head and making him think about the crisis in our country differently. Let me actually just pause right there. You're reading David Brooks, and you describe the reaction to reading that book as, man, this David Brooks book is all up in my head. And it's got me thinking about the crisis in our country. Oh, God. If you think David Brooks is profound and you think he has anything of substance to add to the national conversation, strike one, you're out. The dude is a joke. He's the butt of every joke on Twitter for a reason. David Brooks and Thomas Friedman have a a competition that's going on on a regular basis called a stupid off. Who can get... Who can write the dumber piece? And man, is that a good is that a good fight? So let's continue. Booker said, I think the poverty that worries me most is the poverty of empathy, the poverty of compassion, because you need you need that to do something else, said the New Jersey senator and former mayor of Newark, uh, one of the poorest cities in the US. And so I really do challenge myself every day, like, how can I talk about this in a way that touches and inspires other people to be more aware? He literally said the poverty he worries about is not poverty poverty, not economic poverty, poverty of empathy and poverty of compassion. He is, without a doubt, like, the Whole Foods candidate, the fake woke candidate. Why would you embarrass yourself like this, bro? You know what people are going to say. Like, you have to have some sense of what the left is and what they believe. When you say you care more about poverty of compassion and poverty of empathy, you're just saying, you're inviting attacks. 
attack me for being a dipshit who doesn't realize that poverty poverty is actually significantly worse than poverty of empathy and poverty of compassion. I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck if a billionaire is angry as he's paying his taxes to pay for the social safety net that helps everybody. I just want him to pay his fucking taxes. That's all I give a shit about. He doesn't have to like signing that check. He doesn't have to enjoy funding, you know, various social safety net programs that make sure that women and children aren't, you know, in the streets. I don't give a fuck what he thinks. I care that he does it. Oh, my God. He's so... Ugh. No disrespect to Drake. He reminds me of Drake. Because every Drake song I've ever heard, I'm like, oh, my God, with your fucking, like, I'm so emotional lyrics. Like, me, bro, I'm just an emotional dude. I'm just going to tell all you ladies what I think. And I'm just going to pour my heart out for you. But it's all, like, overdone and fucking melodramatic. And it's just like, ah, reel it in, man. Reel it in with your fucking touchy-ass lyrics. And I got probably a lot of Drake fans out there who are going to come at me for this, but... I don't give a fuck, okay? I was wrong on loot boxes. I'm not wrong on this, son. I'm not wrong on this. But that's Cory Booker. I care about poverty of compassion and poverty of empathy. It's the biggest, it's the worst kind of poverty. That is the type of shit you would get from reading a David Brooks book. That's exa- you know what that, that sounds like somebody who hasn't experienced poverty, poverty. That's what that is. Somebody who cannot relate to that by any stretch of the imagination, so he's like, oh, poverty of empathy. And also, it is a convenient scapegoat for him to say, oh, oh, was I mayor of Newark and we didn't fix poverty, like, even a little bit? Mm, that's okay, because I did fix the poverty that matters. Poverty of empathy and poverty of compassion. Hey, at least, at least you know what you're getting, man, if you support somebody like Cory Booker. You know what you're getting. You're getting, like, Fake wokeness, fake wokeness, overly sentimental garbage. And this is, you know, this is why I can't stand these kinds of candidates. Because it's all, they will fill the room with noise and then not actually change a single thing. Certainly not do the kind of radical change that we need. There's no way. This guy is going to stand up to the health insurance companies and be like, yeah, um, I think 80% of you should be out of business. Is that something Cory Booker is going to do? No. (laughs) Not at all. He would also give the most fake enlightened speeches. I I can see it. Oh, my God. I can see it in my head. The where he thinks he's being like doing like a, a speech with soaring rhetoric that inspires everybody, but really he's just doing like fortune cookie level cliches and, and platitudes. That, oh, that's so Cory Booker. Jesus. Okay. I got to stop talking about him. I'm depressing myself. The fact that he's in the race <laughs> and he's still going and he's saying shit like this. Ugh. Dude, stop embarrassing yourself. You're going to get so few votes, you're going to wish you just didn't stay in for any of the voting so you can pretend like you're more popular than you are.
All right, Newt Gingrich. Gassy Newt is what I call him. <laughs> Newt Gingrich, a.k.a. Gassy Newt. <laughs> I mean, come on. The dude looks like he permanently has gas. He looks just like he is in the dictionary under the definition of bloated. Like, he just looks fucking bloated. He's not fat. He's not fat. He's just bloated permanently. Gassy Newt. That's who he is. So he went on Laura Ingram's show, and um, they beat up on a straw lefty all day. So, I don't, I shouldn't even have to explain this, but I will nonetheless. A straw man, you know, when you straw man somebody, you make up what their position is and then you beat it down. This is the straw lefty. Make up what the left believes and act like this is like central to their philosophy or something and then beat it down. So, let's watch and then we'll discuss. Former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, Fox News contributor and host of the new podcast. Newt's world. All right, Speaker, you and I have been in running around Washington for a long time watching these various debates, the culture wars, and so forth. Why are the Democrats continuing to have this blind spot on where many in the middle reside on issues such as the issue of life? Well, look, I think that the uh, true faith of the left wing of the Democratic Party is now in full blossom. I think they get together in meetings, talk to each other, go out to fundraisers with people who agree with them, and, you know, convince themselves, for example, as you pointed out. I mean, I, I, if you had ever said to me 5, 10, 15 years ago that we would be approving infanticide, and as you point out, the New York legislature would be applauding and cheering that they passed the right to kill babies after they're born, uh, this is grotesque. And most Americans don't agree with it. But among the hardcore left, on issue after issue after issue, uh, they believe things that I think, personally, are crazy. Uh, and that I don't think the American people will endorse. And I think it may set up a 1972 George McGovern disaster where they end up so far out on a left-wing limb that people decide they just can't vote for them. Well, I think, Newt, going back to... Phyllis Schlafly and the Equal Rights Amendment, you know, she successfully led the effort to kill the ERA. I remember reading about how the Democrats back then thought, oh, we got them now. We're going to vanquish the Republican Party forever. And what happened a few years later, Ronald Reagan was elected. So, I mean, they've been, they've been hitting the same drum for decades about the social issues. Well, but these social issues don't go away. The Democrats just keep uh, moving further and further to left. Look, I was in California over the weekend talking to people. The number of women who came up to me and said they're really worried because they think their daughters are not going to be able to have a successful women's sports program because of the drive of the Democrats to basically allow transgender males uh, to dominate women's sports. And I don't think people have realized yet what an assault this is going to be oh uh, on women and on their right to, to compete. Uh, but that's the sort of thing you're not going to get Vogue magazine to print. <laughs> Vogue. You're not going to get the New York Times to print. Uh, and that's why it takes a while. The country gradually recoils after the uh, left-wing establishment has done all it could. And I think you're going to see that kind of recoil on 8 or 10 or 12 issues this, fall, this, this coming year. Yeah. 
No, no, you're not. There are no 8 or 10 or 12 issues where the left is out of the mainstream. On the overwhelming majority of the issues, the left is the mainstream. Let's be clear about that. Medicare for all, free college, living wage, end the wars. These are all overwhelmingly popular. Raising taxes on the rich, overwhelmingly popular. Okay, but put that aside. Newt Gingrich wants you to believe multiple women came up to him in California to express to him, oh, Newt, Newt, you don't understand. It keeps me up at night thinking that transgender athletes will ruin my little girl's sporting event. (laughs) There's a 0% chance Even one person came up to Newt and said, Newt, I must confide in you about the scourge of transgender athletes taking over my little girl's sporting event. Come on, even if you're a conservative, you believe that story that he just told? You believe that? Like, this is the first thing on people's mind, and even if it was on people's mind, this is what somebody would walk up to Newt Gingrich and say? (laughs) I mean, come on, they're playing... You're a mark. They're playing you for suckers. What they do is they will straw man like what the left is all about, and then they just beat up on it all day. Look at the beginning. He said that the left is for infanticide. I got news for you. The left is not for infanticide. Uh, You want to talk about being in left-wing circles? I think I'm familiar with that. I know every prominent lefty uh, political commentator, and they... Not a single one of them has ever said anything about infanticide or believes in infanticide. What they do is they're strawmanning um, legislation that allows for late-term abortions in the cases of rape, incest, and if the life of the mother is in danger. Because uh, according to the Guttmacher Institute, so this is, you know, the people who do the actual research, 80% of abortions occur before, I think it's six weeks. It's either 6 or 12. And then um, 90% of abortions occur before 12 weeks. And 99% of abortions occur before 20 weeks. Just to put that in perspective, viability is about 23 weeks. So 99% of abortions in this country, again, according to the Guttmacher Institute, not Kyle, 99% of the abortions in this country occur before viability before the nervous system is developed in the fetus. So really, in the overwhelming majority of cases, we're talking about fucking gametes and zygotes and embryos, okay? So they know they can't win the debate on those grounds. They can't win the debate on those grounds. So what do they do? I don't know, just say that the left is in favor of killing babies. They literally, I've heard this repeatedly now. Trump spoke about it. Now, uh, Gassy Newt is speaking about it. Gassy Gingrich or Gassy Newt? Which one do you like better? I guess Gassy Gingrich because it's double G. Sorry, Glenn Greenwald, but he's the original double G. Gassy Gingrich. Um, Now, I see I forgot where I was going because I was talking about Gassy Gingrich. (laughs) Um, Oh, I've heard them all talk about it. I've heard them all talk about, oh, my God, infanticide. I need to be clear about this. Literally, the only time you ever have late-term abortion in this country, rape, incest, life of the mother is in danger, or, or there's what's called a fatal defect in the fetus, meaning that the fetus will not survive. 
These are the only times in the U.S. that there's ever late-term abortion. So what do they do? They make it, they straw man so that they have the debate on their terms where they just lie about what the, what the left position is. And they just say, oh, oh, my God, I can't believe you guys are in favor of uh, murdering babies. Murdering babies? What the fuck are you? T- of course we're not in favor of fucking murdering babies. Are you insane? So it's, it's unbelievable. Now, by the way, he also uh, implies there that, like, oh, the left has gone so far left and the American people don't agree with them. Actually, the American people totally agree with the left on abortion. Look at the Gallup poll on it. Um, do you think abortion should be legal under any circumstances, legal only under certain circumstances, or illegal in all circumstances? As you can see there, 50% say it should be legal only under certain circumstances. That's Roe versus Wade. 29% um, believe it should be legal under any circumstances. And the least popular position, which is the position that Republicans are increasingly pushing for with legislation in all these red states, is 18%, illegal in all circumstances. So the overwhelming majority position is the left position. Roe versus Wade and the subsequent fetal viability case says, up until the point of viability, well, Roe versus Wade was trimesters. It got rid of the trimester standard and, and did fetal viability post Roe versus Wade. And what that means is up until the point of viability, it's a woman's right to choose completely. But then after viability, then states can regulate it as they see fit. That, so in other words, the abortion law that we have at the federal level and in the majority of the country, that's what the American people believe in. And Newt has to pretend like, oh, the left is for killing babies, and I, sir, am against murdering babies. Aren't I so moral? No, actually, you're not. You're for every fucking war under the sun, and you're also for cutting the social safety net programs and kicking off these kids as soon as they're born. So uh, totally, totally, totally full of shit. And um, I hope everybody can see through it. But my guess is this rhetoric actually lands because... Everybody's obviously against killing babies, so when he pretends like the left is for killing babies, there are enough clowns out there who will go, I guess the left is for killing babies, and they'll take shit out of context like the governor, is it Northam, who said something in an interview about leave it up to the mother or whatever. Um, But again, the only time we actually do late-term abortions in this country is for life of the mother, rape, incest, and a fatal fetal defect. But I think it, it, it could land because... There's enough of a kernel in there where people go, where some people will go, oh, yeah, I guess they're right. The left is for killing babies and the right is for protecting babies or whatever bullshit. And, um, oh, yeah, the left has totally rallied around this trans sports issue, which, by the way, again, I haven't seen any rhetoric on that, any bills on that. Listen, they work overtime to effectively deflect the conversation from the most important issues in the country, which are health care, the economy, wages, uh, college and, and medical debt, or excuse me, um, student loan debt, medical debt too. So just deflect the conversation from all, like war, we're trying to fucking topple Venezuela and Iran again, adding to the list of wars, deflect everything from the substance, and then hammer away on like a tiny fringe of ultra social justice warriors and pretend like that represents the entire fucking left and pretend like the left is for killing babies and pretend like everybody on the left agrees on trans sports, which they do don't at all. So it's beyond ridiculous and I hope everybody can see through it.
Okay. All right, let me do one more, then we'll take our final break. So this next issue is really something else. It's a stark reminder of a mindset that's still out there. I mean, we could, I'm sure many of us naively thought, oh, it's totally gone. It's not. Arkansas Public Television refuses to air Arthur episode with gay wedding. So here's what the spokesperson um, for the state network that made the decision said, quote, while ideally parents watch our programming with their children and discuss it with them afterwards, the reality is that many children, some of them younger than age four, watch when a parent is not in the room. And realizing that many parents have uh, may not have been aware of the topics of the episode beforehand, we made the decision not to air it on our main channel. Okay, but th- it's not like Arthur's blowing a dude in a highway bathroom. So who cares about, oh my God, what about the kids? Yeah, what about the kids? If you would show a straight wedding in an Arthur episode, and that would be fine, then it should be fine to show a gay wedding. Now, again, I get it. If there was anything overtly sexual, then of course not. You don't want to show that to kids. But there's not anything overtly sexual. It's just a gay wedding. So, again, if they would show a straight wedding, then they should show the gay wedding. Um, But my guess is they would show a straight wedding, and they're not going to show the gay wedding, and they're hiding behind the bullshit of, like, what about the kids? But, again, the only time you should be concerned about the kids is if there's anything overtly sexual. So this is an instance of you have to understand who the original social justice warriors are. The social justice warriors are the evangelical Christians and the social conservatives who will stop at nothing to not feel uncomfortable and not be triggered for a split second. Like, they don't want anything that gets them in their feels. They don't want anything that they slightly disagree with to be presented to them, because God forbid it does, all of a sudden it's a national scandal and you're poisoning the minds of the children and little Bobby and little Timmy want to go blow somebody. I mean, it's just, it's beyond ridiculous. And I I feel like this kind of authoritarianism doesn't get the same coverage that it used to. Now, some would argue it's because it doesn't exist as much. I think that's total nonsense. We have, we had total Republican control of government until the last election. Now, at least the Democrats have the House back, but, you know, many state legislatures are still run by Republicans. And this is a kind of pervasive attitude. And understand, in this case, it was a TV network. So it had nothing to do with politicians, but it's a PBS affiliate, and you still had them make a decision like, no, we're going to kind of censor this episode or pull this episode and run a different one because we're not comfortable with showing a gay wedding. It's not – you shouldn't be coddling social conservatives. You shouldn't. In the same way that you shouldn't coddle, um, you know – People who are socially liberal. Imagine, but there, but see, that's the thing. There, there is, there's a false equivalence there because there is no backlash to some show showing a straight marriage. Nobody on the left is like, "How could you? You should make that a gay marriage." Nobody does that. 
So, but their reaction should be the same when it comes to gay marriages. Can you imagine if in Arthur episode or some other cartoon or whatever, they have an interracial marriage and there's a backlash? You know, I say that, but as I'm saying it, I'm realizing there was actually a backlash a while ago over, I think it was a Cheerios ad that had an interracial couple. There were some, you know, deeply socially conservative, in this case, totally racist people who were like, yeah, we're not cool with that. What's going on here? So, listen, representation matters. It, it's true. Representation matters. And if that cartoon makes even one gay person, no matter how young they are, kid, feel normal, that's good. That's a positive thing. So there should be representations of interracial couples and interracial marriages. There should be representations of um, gay couples and gay marriages. And again, you don't have to, like, I get the concern of, oh, my God, you're overreaching for no reason. Like, if you're doing diversity simply for diversity's sake and it's not part of the plot or it doesn't mesh, then I get the criticism. But that's more of an artistic and creative criticism of, oh, my God, this is abrasive in how you're presenting it. Versus a substantive criticism. It's, you should have representation, and it should be included in a natural, normal way. You don't have to shove it down everybody's throat. You can present it in a way where it's tasteful. And you go, oh, okay, that's cool, that makes sense. And this Arthur cartoon seems to make perfect sense. Because, again, it's not, they're not shoving it down everybody's throat. It's just part of the plot. So, the original social justice warriors, authoritarian righties, social conservatives, they did not go away. I need everybody to understand that. And unfortunately, too many today don't seem to get that. All right, final break when we come back. I got uh, – there's a new trend of playing with numbers to get the desired outcome coming from the Trump administration – we're going to talk about that, and um, we're going to talk Saudi Arabia and who the Republicans invited to speak on the issue of the environment. Oh, boy, you don't want to miss that. Stay right there. We will be right back.
All right, we're back. Mitch. All right, I'm going to talk. Let's go to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, let's go to Saudi Arabia. Then eventually we'll get to the Trump administration's sleazy old tricks. Old slash new, but old also tricks. The same Saudi Arabian government that's been getting massive praise and countless weapons from the West uh, is now doing this. Three prominent moderate Saudi Sunni scholars held on multiple charges of terrorism will be sentenced to death and executed shortly after Ramadan. Two government sources and one of the men's relatives have told Middle East Eye. The most prominent of these is Sheikh Salman al-Oda, an internationally renowned scholar known for his comparatively progressive views in the Islamic world on Sharia and homosexuality. Oda was arrested in September 2017 shortly after tweeting, a prayer for reconciliation between Saudi Arabia and its Gulf neighbor Qatar. Three months after uh, Riyadh launched a blockade on the Emirates. The other two slated for execution are Awad al-Karni, a Sunni preacher, academic, and author, and Ali al-Omari, a popular broadcaster. They, too, were arrested in September 2017. So Saudi Arabia actually waited. They arrested these people, and then they waited. They were bracing for their response, not only from the international community, but from the U.S. government. And when no angry response came from the highest levels of the U.S. government, that's when they made the decision, like, we'll just execute these fuckers. Let's kill them. Under normal operating procedure, and even, yes, even under administration like the Obama administration, they would have condemned that. They would have talked to them and said, no, you you can't do this. Um, Despite all their flaws there would have been at least some level of pushback. And there was none. There was no pushback. Now, of course, the human rights group spoke up about it, but they have no power. They have no teeth. And so it would require the U.S. government speaking up and saying, listen, you're going too far here. Um, They didn't speak up. They didn't speak up. Now, what I was amazed to learn is these, um, these people who've now been sentenced to death are... They have giant social media followers, like literally millions of people following them. And they have relatively progressive views, not like actual progressive views, but progressive views for the um, Sunni Islamic worldview on issues of homosexuality and other issues. So 
Why are they killing them? I don't know. I mean, it could very well be over the fact that they were calling for peace with Qatar and that contradicts the official government policy. And we know that, you know, the Saudi Arabian government does not like criticism at all. So it's possible that it's over that. It's possible that it's over the more left teachings of these particular uh, preachers and hosts. It's possible that that's why they want to kill them. Or it's possible that they were threatened by their massive following. That's another thing. Because usually dictators act to off their opponents as soon as they view them as legit competition. So it's certainly possible that one of these guys or all of these guys were getting a degree of power that the government was uncomfortable with, and so they're trying to nip it in the bud by, fuck it, we'll just kill him. But this is, again, this is a theocratic dictatorship that acts like this. And remember, we're the country that lectures everybody about human rights and democracy and freedom, and then we prop up this government. This government that's murdering moderate scholars and preachers, and there's no solid rationale at all to do it. Not that there ever really could be, but we're not talking about, you know, they're being killed because they killed somebody or anything. No. It it is, it feels very similar to what they did with the women's rights activists. So they, Saudi Arabia granted women the right to drive. Wow, how, like, progressive of you, (laughs) all these years later. Um, But then they turned around and they said, we're going to, kill the women who were protesting for the right to drive. What? What? <laughs> you you say, okay, you're right, we're going to let you drive, at least under certain circumstances. Of course, it doesn't go as far as it should. But then you turn around and kill the women who were protesting for that right. Why? Because, again, it's all about the questioning of authority. They don't care that they just fundamentally agreed with the protesters. They're like, I don't care, you question me, and you're not allowed to do that. So this is just a vicious, vicious government, man. They kill people for sorcery and witchcraft and apostasy, and now they're just killing moderate scholars. So it's absolutely terrifying, and of course, the Trump administration has nothing to say, and they will continue to prop them and fund them and give them weapons as they massacre people in Yemen and as they kill moderate scholars. So there's a new trend of playing with numbers. Ooh, i got to change the graphic. Every now and then, you forget that one. You know what I'm saying? Actually, you know what? Let me go to uh, the Mark Morano one first. I want to do the, this story involving InfoWars first. So Right Wing Watch uh, is reporting on what the congressional Republicans are up to, and it's not pretty. House Republicans invited Mark Morano, 
a semi-frequent InfoWars guest and climate change denier to speak before the House Committee on Natural Resources Subcommittee on Water, Oceans, and Wildlife regarding reports that one million species are threatened with extinction due to man-made climate change. Morano is the founder of Climate, of climate Depot and gets his paycheck from the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, which receives contributions from big oil companies. Shocker. He was named Media Matters Climate Change Misinformer of the Year in 2012, and to this day, conservative media programs regularly turn to him to provide a contrarian voice against the overwhelming scientific consensus and warnings about the consequences of climate change. So this guy, we've actually covered this guy a few times before. He's um, uniquely shitty among the climate change deniers, and he's one of the most prominent voices in mainstream media who goes out there and makes the bullshit arguments. Um, and it's damaging. It's damaging because he makes his bullshit sound convincing. And all you need in order for the wrong side to win this discussion is just to raise enough doubt where we drag our feet. So nothing has to happen for them to win. Nothing has to happen. They just have to continue to raise just enough of a doubt where people go, I don't know, and then we drag our feet more on climate change. Um, For the proper side to win, we need to convince everybody it's real and then also take proactive action to stop it. The status quo is on the side of the climate change deniers. So you just don't have to do anything, and they win. So it's an infuriating dynamic, and this guy is one of the worst of the worst. But yes, he is a a somewhat frequent InfoWars guest, and the House Republicans are like, yeah, that guy's an expert. Let's invite him to basically pretend like we're not destroying the environment and climate change is not this massive problem. And I mean, honestly, it's just embarrassing at this point, man. This reminds me of Jim Inhofe. Remember when Jim Inhofe was given a speech in the Senate, and he brought in a snowball from outside and literally argued, see, global warming isn't happening, there's snow outside. And he took the snowball and he threw it on the the Senate carpet, and he was, like, laughing about it, like, ha-ha, see, gotcha, stupid leftist. It's so painful. These are people who are making life and death decisions. I mean, that dude has power. That dude has authority. That dude has control. That dude wrote a book about how climate change is bullshit, he thinks. And now Mark Moreno, this dude, um, he's viewed as like an actual expert when he's nothing but a, a, a shill and a sellout to big oil companies and to, um, you know, the fossil fuel industry in general. And he's repeatedly taken funding from those groups. So it's, it's a really terrifying dynamic. And again, to go back to a point I made earlier, when you're a kid, you think like, oh, you know, people in charge are kind of, they know what they're doing to some extent, obviously. I mean, they're, they're the ones making the decisions. They had to get there through some sort of a, a meritocracy, and they wear their suits and ties, and they're in an official-looking building. Ooh, look at how the Senate looks. Look at how Congress looks. Look at how, uh, you know, look at how the White House looks. Were there serious people doing serious things? No. They're turning to fucking InfoWars guests to tell them about the environment. If that doesn't scare the shit out of you, nothing will.
Okay. Let me go to, this is actually our last story of the day. Trump's playing with numbers. So there's a new trend of playing with numbers to get the desired outcome coming from the White House. We've seen this on other issues, and now we see it on perhaps the most important issue. The White House was not happy with a report that warned his new energy policy would cause an additional 1,400 premature deaths, so it instructed the Environmental Protection Agency to change the math. And, according to a report from the New York Times, um, the EPA complies. Holy shit. The Times reports that the EPA is planning to introduce a new way of calculating the future health risks of air pollution in order to push through Trump's affordable clean energy rule after the initial analysis was unpalatable. The new calculus will make it appear that the number of additional deaths will be significantly less than 1,400, even though there has been no change to the proposed legislation. The method has not been peer-reviewed, is not scientifically sound. Um, Sources inside the EPA told the Times. Okay, okay. So we just saw this when it comes to poverty. They want to change the poverty line or or the way that they want to basically do a chain CPI for the poverty line. So the increase in the poverty line happens at a slower rate, therefore kicking off of the social safety net many more people. So that's one reason they want to do it. I think the other reason they want to do it is it gives Trump a brag line. Under my administration, we have reduced poverty by, you know, fill in the blank. And it's like, well, actually, no, you just changed how poverty is calculated. So you weren't lifting people out of poverty. You just said poverty is a lower line now. So it's, all, it, it's, it's playing with numbers to get the desired outcome and to pretend like, you know, you're kicking ass on the economy And it's really obnoxious because it also works. It also works because then you'll hear these lines parroted in in conservative media of like, oh, he kicked, he, you know, lifted X amount of people out of poverty. What they do today is they use the stock market and the unemployment rate as like, oh, see, the economy is doing wonderful. The stock market's doing great and the unemployment rate is low. But again, the stock market is really a reflection of how corporations are doing not a reflection of how people are doing. And the unemployment rate, while it's relatively low, it's not the three-point whatever number that they're citing. The U6 unemployment is about 7 or so percent, 7.5%. So really, we need a top-down retooling of this economy and how we view what's a healthy economy and what's not. And actually, Andrew Yang has spoken about this quite a bit, and he makes very compelling points when he talks about, I forget what he calls it, but a new way of judging how people are doing. He wants like human-centered capitalism where instead of measuring how we're doing through GDP, for example, and how we're doing through the stock market, we measure it through a different lens where we get a more accurate reflection of how average people are doing. Um, And I think that's incredibly important, and I think we should do that because right now, and Donald Trump's the biggest fraud of all because he used to cite the U6 unemployment number. And say, ah, actually, he didn't just like that. He went higher than that. He would give a higher number than the U6 unemployment. And then now he goes to the traditional unemployment rate. Why? Because he's president. And he wants to make himself look good. So before he would say, oh, employment, unemployment's like 20-some-odd percent. Now he cites the official number. And everybody knows the official number's bullshit. 
three point whatever percent, nonsense, utter nonsense. That disregards people who are, you know, who've given up. That disregards people who are underemployed. That disregards people who are forced to work part time even though they want to work full time. Like there's it. It's playing with the numbers to try to get the outcome you want so you can brag. And he'll, of course, take any nugget that's positive of him and run with it. And so what he's doing here, same thing, except for EPA numbers. Now, what a lot of people don't necessarily understand, they don't grasp it, it doesn't sink in, is that pollution kills. Pollution kills for sure. And instead of, instead of acknowledging that and coming up with a plan that doesn't lead to more deaths, they just pretend like, oh, just change, change the methodology, change the way we measure this stuff, and I'll pretend like our plan does not lead to more deaths when it literally leads to more deaths. So just understand, they side with industry 10 out of 10 times. That's what the Trump administration does. They will side with industry 10 out of 10 times. They will deregulate and let them do whatever the fuck they want because they want those sweet, sweet campaign contributions. And if you give them uh, the campaign contributions, they got your back, son. What do you want? You want deregulation? Sure. You want us to drop ongoing court cases against you like they did with the predatory payday loan industry? Sure. This is an administration that is totally beholden to the corporatocracy. And it's funny because in many ways Trump ran against that and pretended like he was the solution and Hillary was the status quo and Hillary was the sellout. And me, I'm above that, bro. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bust this up. The average Joe and Jane will never be forgotten again. He said stuff like that on the campaign trail and in his final ad. And it's um, beyond ridiculous because guess what? They've been forgotten. 100% they've been forgotten. Okay. That is our show. Finished a little bit early today. All right, guys. I love y'all. We'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. And look forward to those secular talk clips dropping because some of them are classics, like me eating toast mid-fucking... <laughs> mid-Avenatti segment. You like that, right? You like the way I was able to slip in the toast-eating part, don't you? (laughs) I was just hungry, and I had to find a way to eat it, so I added it in this segment like a genius. Anyway, love you guys. Talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day and your weekend. Peace.